Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. All right. Well, we're going to jump into the Word here now. We'll continue our study this morning in Romans. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, if you're not already there, we'll be picking up in verse 12 this morning. If you need a Bible, there are extras on the back table. Please feel free to grab one. We're continuing our journey through the book of Romans, this incredible book that is filled with such deep truths, filled with uh, doctrine, filled with just... uh, things that give us an incredible understanding of of our faith. And so uh, it, it is just, it's a pleasure to go on a journey through a book like this, but we know also that at times it can be difficult. It can be tough to, to understand much of what Paul communicates in this letter. And so uh, we're doing our best here to try and break it off piece by piece. And, and as we enter into our time of study here this morning, and even as I was considering what the second half of chapter five really puts before us, uh, I hope that you'll see here and, and be able to reflect yourself on the significance of God's grace. When we hear grace, when we hear this word grace that's so often used in Christianity, and rightfully so, this idea of unmerited favor, we don't deserve it, that's been clearly established by Paul to this point. I wonder though, for many of you, when someone speaks of God's grace, what does it mean to you? What do you think about Has the reality of God's grace radically transformed your perspective? Has His grace been able to fully invade your life? Has it changed, even transformed your perspective? Has it changed your thinking? Because it should. But oftentimes we can get so comfortable with this idea of grace that that God gives us something that we don't deserve, that we don't really allow it to begin to just really change everything about us. I think there's times when we could really benefit from just meditating upon the significance of His grace. And that's much of what Paul has for us in the second half of this chapter. As As we come to these verses... Which, by the way, as I've already alluded to, even, even these verses here today, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, uh, they are often considered one of the more confusing uh, passages of, of Scripture. Uh, there's an excitement on the part of Paul as he describes these things, but it, it seems that sometimes Paul sort of gets ahead of himself and we can find ourselves really trying to go, okay, what, what is it that he's saying here? And so we pray for uh, understanding from the Holy Spirit today. Uh, and, and, and when he brings it, I, and, and again, this chapter here, as much as it may be uh, a challenge at times when we encounter it, when he begins to just show us the significance of what's being shared here, it, 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 should, it should strike us. It should, it should move us. It, what Paul does here is he starts to focus on a broader view of our salvation. Having looked closely at uh, the details of, of what we have because of salvation in the first part of the chapter, he, he sort of zooms in, if you will, and, and helps us to see what we benefit from as we are justified, as we receive salvation. And he now, he now sort of pulls it back a little bit to give us a bigger picture of the salvation story. And when it comes to grace, 
I wonder sometimes, do, do we know it's really grace if we don't know that we need it? Do you rejoice in, in being rescued if you're not sure whether you are even in need of a rescue? In the next nine verses here, Paul seeks to make sure that we grasp the significance of our human condition. The, the rescue that occurs because of God's love for us and then the resulting glory that comes for those who receive it. And my hope for us today would be similar to as we did last week to allow these truths then to shape our perspective and to change if necessary our attitudes. And so if you would just agree with me once more in prayer as we begin. Father this is your word and we thank you for it. And Lord even when we encounter passages Lord that can be difficult for us to really wrap our minds around. Lord we thank you that your word is, is alive. It's, it's supernatural. It's powerful. And so it's not just about us, Lord, comprehending intellectually, but allowing your spirit to move and work in our lives and in our hearts to understand these truths. And I pray that that would take place here today. How blessed we would be, Lord, if we all leave this place with a greater sense of the depth of your grace, your goodness towards us. So, Lord, may that work be accomplished here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning once again in verse 12, we see here this word that we will see many times throughout Romans, therefore, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul saying therefore is connecting what's been said previously to this new thought. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul had given us six blessings that come from salvation. I'll remind us of those. We considered these last week. In the first 11 verses, what Paul does is he helps us to see that because we are justified by faith, we have one, peace with God, two, access to God, three, we now have hope, Four, we experience God's love. Five, we have the assurance of salvation. And six, we are able to now rejoice in God. Those are wonderful blessings that come from salvation and are only those for believers. You can only experience that as you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And so these, these truths then should cause us to be joyful people. That's the implication there is it all builds towards rejoicing in God. The reality of our salvation should be on display in our behavior. Our joy, as it were, should be before all men always. We considered a quote that I won't uh, read through it again from John Stott that essentially says Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. Why? Because we have every, every reason to rejoice because we were formerly dead in our trespasses and now have been made alive in Christ. That's a wonderful thing for us to celebrate. There's nothing greater than that, truly. And so we should have joy in our lives. What has happened in our lives and how we feel about it should serve to win others to Christ. And so, yes, we should take uh, evaluation Take inventory of our lives, of the joy that we're demonstrating. And if we are a people, if we are a person that others would say, I want to be around this person. They're joyful. They're filled with the Spirit. And if not, we should say, Lord, my heart needs to change. We should be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to bring transformation into our lives. But oftentimes we lose perspective. 
We begin to live life seemingly unaware of what has been accomplished for us. We lose a sense of awe of the glorious rescue that has occurred. We begin to have grace amnesia. And so Paul here in this, in this letter seeks to ensure that we recall fully what has occurred. So here then in verses 12 through 14, just here at the beginning, what Paul does is he reminds us of our sinful human condition. So Paul says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. This is kind of a longer way of saying we're all sinners and we have been since the very beginning when Adam fell into sin. He reminds us that we've all sinned because of Adam and the original sin in the garden and the death that resulted at that time, all have been affected. Sin and its impact are universal. There's no exception other than that of Jesus who is fully divine and became fully man. It says Romans 3, 9 through 11 tells us that Paul had, had touched on this earlier when he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And later in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you may be thinking, especially if you've been studying along with us or if you're familiar with Romans, you get to these places and you think, man, Paul sure is reminding us of our sin a lot. And, and, and if that's your thought, you would be right in identifying that. But why is it that you think, why would he be doing that? Because we forget. We forget so easily that that, that was our condition. As I've said, we have grace amnesia because we're so good at convincing ourselves that we're okay. And we're also good at looking at others and thinking they're not okay. But this is only because we have a distorted view of ourselves. Our judgment of others, friends, only serves to reveal the condition of our own hearts. It serves to reveal our self-righteousness. Truly, the way in which we look at anyone else with a negative light is an indication of self-righteousness. It's us communicating, though we may not say it verbally, I'm better than you. If only you were like me. Because we can forget where we've been. We can forget that we were dead in our sins. And the truth is that the ground is level, as we often share, at the foot of the cross. And the death that has come through sin is the great equalizer. And Paul desires for us all to see just how desperate our condition is. Because if we can know how desperate our condition is, then we can have a greater appreciation for the goodness of his grace. Now as Paul moves to verse 13, he sort of goes off on another explanation. And we'll return to this primary thought in verse 18. And this is why perhaps in your Bibles there are parentheses around the following verses. Because it sort of says, hey, you can take this little chunk and it can function on its own. And so in verse, in verse 13, Paul now starts to go off on this other thought saying, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. You see, 
people struggle to accept the idea, oftentimes, of original sin. That somehow Adam's failure affects all of us. And Paul says, look, sin has been in the world since that time. And even though you may not have sinned exactly the way that Adam did, in effect, you have And it has had its effect on you. And so in verse 13, Paul says, sin has always been in the world since the fall. But he recognizes also here that the law itself makes sin more apparent. What does he mean by that? When I was a a kid uh, growing up in in southwest Michigan, we lived in a small town. And uh, we lived out in the country, which was a real blessing. And I had some... I had some good friends that lived down the road, and, and we lived in this area where, you know, when you're in farm country, everything is sort of plots of land, right? And all the roads are, you know, it's, it's hard to get lost. You know, just keep going this way or this way. It's all squares. You'll, you'll work your way around. And as far as neighbors were concerned, you knew pretty much that if you went out to your backyard and turned left or right and walked for a while, you'd hit one of their pieces of land. Well, I, I was blessed to have friends that were just the next, uh, not, not our neighbors, but the next one over. And uh, so there was only one chunk of land between our house uh, and his. And so you could ride on through in the woods, you know, which was just wonderful childhood, you know, jump on your bike or whatever, and you can just tear off through there and you can make little trails and you can build forts along the way. And, and so you'd ride on through the woods uh, over to my friend's house. But of course, you had to cross over another person's land to get there. Now, that land, unfortunately, halfway through my childhood, sold to a new owner. And this owner was not too fond of the traffic from kids across their land. And so we began to get creative with how we crossed the land, when we crossed the land, how much disruption we maybe made as we went back and forth, right? But do you think at any point in sort of learning that he wasn't fond of us being on his land that it stopped us from crossing it? No, no, it did not. We continued right along, right? But, but we knew. And, and we even justified it by saying, it's not like there's a no trespassing sign, right? Well, what do you suppose came along? A no trespassing sign, right? There it was, plain as day. Boom, posted, no trespassing. He should have written my name on there. Do you think it stopped us? No, it did not stop us. No, we went right along, just continuing as we had always done. And what are you supposed to happen next? The phone call, right? That phone call when you know that you, your parents are talking to somebody new and you think it's about you and you're sort of listening in like, uh-oh, is that, is that about me? Right? But the no trespassing sign certainly did not stop us. But it did create some accountability, didn't it? But of course, we continued right along. It, 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 it was as if we said, well, we're just going to ignore that. We're going to pretend like we've not even seen it. But the accountability was now there. The law had now brought about a greater level of accountability to my sin. Now, here's the thing. As I was describing that to you, I didn't hear a bunch of gasps when I said that I ignored that sign. Right? I didn't hear a, oh, how dare you? In fact, most of you are like, yeah, you went right by that sign, didn't you? You know why? Because you're all a bunch of sinners. <laughs> right? That's the truth of the matter. Because we're, because we're familiar with this. It is our human condition. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's like, listen, all you have to do is look around. All you have to do is remember. And you know, yes, this is my heart. 
There's a study done by an individual named Burton White on child development. He, to my knowledge, is not a believer, and he wrote a book, some of you may be familiar with it, called The First Three Years of Life. It's a parenting book, and he writes in it this, from 15 to 16 months on, as his, this child he's observing, as his self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities specifically to see what will be allowed and what won't. In other words, he will begin to systematically challenge the authority of the adult he lives with. Something in his nature. 15 to 16 months, and this little kid is starting to go, all this stuff I've been told not to do, and I'm going to slowly just do it. How about this? How about this? How about this? We don't need to be taught how to sin. And so you see Adam's sin in Genesis 3, where he attempted to be like God and challenge authority, has affected all. And still today, we are all attempting to be like God. Our sin today, doesn't matter what sin it is, is really rooted in that initial attempt to be like God. God. But praise God, Jesus came to rescue us from this. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Whoa. Simplify here. Paul says judgment and death came through the sin of Adam. And really, when we think about it, death is easy. Death is easy. Anyone can take life. But to give life, to restore life, that's miraculous. And so the free gift of grace that comes through Jesus is far superior to that of the sin of Adam, praise God. He goes on to say, verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase reads verse 17 the following way. For if one man's offense meant that men should be slaves to death all their lives, it is a far greater thing that through another man, Jesus Christ, Men, by their acceptance of his more than sufficient grace and righteousness, should live all their lives like kings. And I wonder, what are you living like? You see, God gives far more than we lost in Adam. But we must receive it. Are you living like a slave or living like a king? And that's not an endorsement of a prosperity gospel. That would be inconsistent with Scripture. But it's very similar to a story that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, we considered this. It's, I, I couldn't help it as I was studying this week uh, and, and pondering this and, and considering this verse in particular to think of a passage of Scripture I love very much of Mephibosheth, who we read in 2 Samuel chapter 
9. We considered this passage if you were at our Thanksgiving service this past year. And Mephibosheth, we know, and I won't consider the, the, the full passage, but we know that Mephibosheth is a son of Jonathan. And Scripture gives us the account that at a young age, Mephibosheth, because of the chaos of Saul's defeat, was being carried uh, by his nurse, and he was dropped and seemingly uh, trampled in, in the midst of all the chaos. And because of that, he was wounded and forever unable to walk. And as was the custom at that time, as people were beginning to just sort of clear out of the, of the palace in haste, knowing that David would in fact become the king, and it was every bit David's right to not only expel people from the, the, the palace and his kingdom, but even take their lives should he choose to do so, that Mephibosheth then hid out. For years he was hiding, fearing for his life, expecting any day that one of the messengers of the king would finally find him and take him in and he would have to give account and he would be put to death. And I can only imagine what his life was like hiding out in a, in a small town, in a little house, daily wondering, when's it coming for me? And so in these years that he spends hiding out, finally that knock comes one day. And it is a messenger of the king who's come to find him. But he's not come to take him in order to take his life. Though he tells him, hey, you got to get to the palace. And, and no doubt Mephibosheth is in fear as he's making his way there. When he arrives, he throws himself at the feet of the king and says, who am I? Literally, he says, I'm but a dog to you. What, he just knows at this point he's to throw himself at the mercy of the king. And it's there that David says, I've been searching for you. And he doesn't take his life. He doesn't condemn him. What he says is, I love you and I made a promise to your father and you have a seat at my table and a place in my home forevermore. And I can only imagine from Mephibosheth as he reflected on the years he spent in such conditions to know that there was a place for him at the table of a king. Yet such is our life when we continually disregard and dismiss what it is that God has done for us when we do not consider the significance of His grace that has been poured out upon us and we find ourselves continually going back to the things of the world, the things that were the means of our death. We often convince ourselves, so easily it seems, that sin is better, though it brings death. And we reject Jesus and what He has for us, but His free gift of grace brings life. If we only surrender to it. Now as we move here now to verse 18. What Paul does is he returns then to his original thought from verse 12. Saying in verse 18. Therefore as through one man's offense. Judgment came to all men. Resulting in condemnation. Even so through one man's righteous act. The free gift came to all men. Resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience. Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In our men's study yesterday morning, we considered lessons on manhood from the lives of David and Solomon. And one distinctive attribute of a godly man is that of obedience. And this is something that is perfectly demonstrated for us by Jesus. And, and that's a wonderful thing. 
because it's not just that Jesus came to accomplish what he did for our salvation, although of course we look at that and we say, praise God for that, but, but he was a wonderful demonstration of obedience in the process that we must learn from. In our sinfulness, we are disobedient. Disobedient to his word. Treating his word and, and the, the, the truth that he gives us as something that is oppressive, as something that holds us back, as something that prevents us from getting what it is that we want or deserve. And even as our little kids learned this last week in, in VBS and considering the Ten Commandments on the last night, it's, it's not rules that oppress us, but rather his love for us and desire to, to keep us safe, to keep us from getting hurt. Obedience brings blessing. And, and Jesus gives us the perfect example of obedience. In Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, this incredible passage that you likely know well, it reads, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's really no example throughout history of anyone who has sacrificed so much, who had every right to say, no, this is not my path, I don't deserve it. Yet in his love for us and his willingness to be obedient, he went all the way to the cross and died for us. As obedience is so important. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul brings all of this here to, to this amazing culmination. And, and by the way, in verse 21, he ends it in much the way that he began the chapter, emphasizing through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants us to understand continuously throughout this letter. It's through him. It's because of him. It's, it's all about him. But he brings it to this place then where he's begun in the second half of this chapter to remind us of here's how desperate your condition is. Here's how bad it is. But look what Christ has done. He has rescued you from this. He has made a way for you to be justified. But he didn't end there. As he tells of our glorious rescue, he concludes with the promise of a righteous reign. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's what grace is. Grace isn't just confined to, I didn't deserve to be saved and he saved me. Yes, that's part of it. But it goes beyond that in terms of what he promises us in the future. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Rightly translated, this reads that grace superabounded. I mean, that's fun. To think of that. It's not just that it abounded. It's superabounded. It's the language's attempt to say it was just so much. You can't even begin to understand it. It's to say that this grace is unending. That it's overflowing. That, that there is no limit to it. And you, Christian, are the recipient of it. Not just today, but for eternity. 
Are you aware of that grace? Do you consider what it is that he has done? Does it change your thinking? Does it change your perspective? I'm not saying that every day we're perfect. We can look forward to glory for that. I'm not saying that there aren't days when we find ourselves slipping into a slump. That there aren't challenges in life that cause us to go, man, this is hard. But as I've said many times over these last several weeks, if we are going to take Scripture seriously, the implication here is that when we find ourselves in that place, then in reflecting on what it is He's done for us, we can snap out of it and say, God, you're good. You have saved me. You've restored me. And you've given me a promise of a future that I can't even begin to grasp. And so because of that, I'm going to live with joy today. And furthermore, as I interact with other people, I'm certainly not going to pretend like I'm more righteous than them. But rather, I'm going to see them as they are. I'm going to see them like me. And that will cause me to love them and to serve them and to care for them. I want us to close today by looking at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd invite you to turn there for this passage as we begin to close. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45, we'll read through the end of the chapter. And here's what I want you to, here's what I want as I read through this. If I get to the end of this and you don't find yourself overwhelmed with gratitude towards God, then we're getting the AED off the wall over there because you're dead. You got to be excited about this. And, I, and to some degree, I say that, I suppose, in jest to say, yeah, there's got to be, a, there's no heartbeat here if we're not getting excited about this. But in truth, in the reality, if I can get to the end of this passage and you're not moved by it, then maybe you are. Maybe you are spiritually dead. And you need to go, man, I, this, isn't, this isn't moving me. This isn't, this isn't, it's not registering. And maybe it's that moment that you need to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Because maybe you've been going through the motions. Maybe you've yet to, to truly just surrender your life to Christ. Because guys, what's promised to us, what, what Paul, because here he's writing to another church, and, and so there should be a theme here in, in, in understanding what Paul is about, what he wants us to understand, and it's in the Word of God. It's the, in, it's the inspired Word of God. And he begins, verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's you and me. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And that's what we have in him, verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. No way! Not me, Lord. Do you, do you know me? Do you know my heart? Do you know how wicked I am? Do you know how sinful I am? No way, Lord. Not your glory upon me. But he says, yes. And not just that. Now this I say, verse 50, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Okay, well, God, I'm corrupt and I'm not inheriting anything. I know it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, 
must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a glorious truth that should change everything about how we live each day. And yes, there are going to be days where we forget. But we return to the word. We're reminded of what he's done for us. We say, Lord, forgive me and help me to press on, Lord. Immovable, steadfast, abounding in you, knowing, Lord, that this is what you've done for me. Lord, you've taken me from the pit dead in my sin. You've rescued me and you've given me promise of a future that one day, Lord, I would be like you in a moment changed into what it is that you've created me to be. And and in between now and then, you're in the process of changing me still, using all things in my life to mold me and to shape me. And so I challenge us today, myself included, consider these truths for the very reason that the Holy Spirit put them there through the pen of Paul. To give us perspective. To help us to see things the way that he wants us to see it. Because when we see things through the lens of the gospel, everything we encounter is different. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful, Lord, to be gathered together here today. To consider your word, Lord. What a gift in and of itself. And Lord, for us to to be able to, by your spirit, comprehend these truths, Lord. What a gift that is. And it's grace, Lord. It's not... Just, Lord, that you have saved us. Though that in and of itself, Lord, would be enough. That, Lord, you say, I have so much more for you. I'm going to mold you and shape you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you more like me. I'm going to give you the promise of an eternity with me. Lord, may these truths ever resonate within our hearts and our minds such that, Lord, each day we'd have a right perspective as we go out and serve you. Lord, help us to be a joyful people. Help us to be a loving people. Lord, help us to be a people who live our lives in a way that wins others to you. Do that work in our lives. And I pray for anyone who may be here today or watching online, whether now or later on, and maybe by your spirit have have recognized that, Lord, they're not spirit-filled. They've never surrendered their life to you. Lord, that's, that's, that's a work that you do. But if that's you today, just surrender your life to him. Tell him. Recognize who he is. Father, I, re- I know, Lord, that you are alive and seated on the throne. That, Lord Jesus, you came and you died for me for the forgiveness of my sins. And I am sorry that I've put all these other things on the throne of my heart. I want you, Jesus. Take my life. Change it, Lord. Forgive me. I repent of my sins, Lord, and I want to live for you. If you're struggling with joy today, just surrender that to him. Lord, I'm struggling. Change my heart, Lord. Change my attitude. Help me to see things the way that you see things, Lord. Give me an appreciation, Lord, for your many blessings, for your grace, for your mercy. Do whatever it takes in my life, Lord, to bring me to that place. Father, do that work in our hearts here today. We thank you so much, Lord, for who you are and what you've done for us and what it is that you're going to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.